In the beginning, there was darkness. A void waiting to be filled with the echoes of destiny. From the depths of time, legends emerged. Heroes forged in the fires of adversity, their stories etched in the fabric of eternity. Through the sands of ancient deserts, across the vast expanse of galaxies, and amidst the tumultuous waves of the ocean, their journeys began. But amidst the chaos, there arose a whisper, a call to action, a beacon of hope. Now, as the world holds its breath, a new tale unfolds, a story of courage, of triumph against all odds. Join us as we delve into the depths of imagination, as we embark on a journey beyond the realms of possibility. For in every tale lies a lesson, in every legend a truth waiting to be discovered. This is not just a podcast. This is an odyssey, a quest for knowledge, a quest for inspiration, a quest for the very essence of what it means to be human. Welcome, dear listeners, to a world of infinite possibilities. Welcome, dear listeners, to the True Life Podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the True Life Podcast. I hope everybody's having a beautiful day. I hope you got to wake up next to the person you love. I hope the sun is shining and the birds are singing. I, I'm so thankful to have such a great guest for you guys today. And we're gonna, I'm going to introduce to you the one and only Aaron Cruz. He's a man who has an incredible passion for positive change, who cares deeply about creating, transforming trauma into a position of lived experience for individuals, families, and communities. He's an award-winning producer, a high-performance team builder, founder of The Spark, a groundbreaking coaching approach that utilizes rites of passage, immersive experiences to dramatically elevate awareness, embodiment, and impact. He's a historian and anthropologist. He's certified by CTA ICF. And probably the most positive, incredible thing to me anyways, that he's a loving husband and a proud father of three. Aaron, there's way more I could say, but I'm so thankful for you. Thank you for being here today. How are you? Hey, I'm doing awesome, George. It's an honor to be a part of the True Life Podcast, man. Thank you for having me on. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely, man. So I, I was going to, when I thought about doing the intro today, I was like, gosh, there's so much cool stuff in here I could put. But I thought it might really benefit the people if they could hear your origin story about how you kind of became to came to this path, how you kind of came to become the guy that you are today. Would you mind sharing that? Yeah, absolutely. You know, so goodness, I'll probably go back to college in this one then. So I was studying anthropology all throughout college, my college experience. You know, um, I grew up in New Jersey, a rather urban, fast paced lifestyle. You know, I had a lot of uh, cool upbringing there with my family and friends. You know, one thing is I did get exposed to compounds of various forms very early on you know it's part of the rave culture part of the festival music culture so all those things were kind of re- very influential for me but when i once started going to school and i and i and i graduated western university and i once then started in my uh, my graduate program I was in anthropology at the time and i was looking at south american central american uh, mexican american you know mexican ancient tradition looking at these cultures there civilizations that were utilizing plant medicine compounds ceremony sacred ritual 
And they were able to form these long-term, like highly symbiotic relationships with the environment around them, cultivating different tribal lineages that were all infused into an epicenter that had uh, advanced uh, astronomy, advanced uh, philosophical underpinnings, archaeology that just blew the mind and right at the center, tail knuckle, flesh of the gods, you know, <laughs> sitting around. And uh, so I was observing it from more of an ivory tower, academic perspective, and like, oh, that's very curious, you know. And then also looking at the conquistadors, the missionaries that were coming in and they persecuted, uh, you know, different aspects of their traditions, mostly religious and spiritual traditions. But uh, Public enemy number one, Teonacto, flesh of the gods. We do not like plants. We do not like the eating or imbuing or imbibing with plants that were inspiring visions or transcendent awareness of any form or communion with deity or anything like that. So I found that to be really just really kind of curious. What is it about this ceremonial plan? What is it about the medicine that was so um, destructive or perceivably so? Um, so I ended up actually at a music festival, I'd say back in 2008. Uh, took a, a larger than therapeutic dose of LSD at the time. Um, and it really immediately erupted into this state of more of a unified awareness perspective. The Aaron uh, that had to be the intellectual and the funny one and the, you know, the one that danced a certain way and all these different things, it just started really melting away. It started really dissipating from my existence and uh, all around me, no matter if I was looking at uh, a girl in a ballerina tutu or a big old strong guy with a guinea tea or whatever it was, Everybody, I saw the same soul signature. They want to be cared for, appreciated. They want to be celebrated. They want to be a part of community. But they fundamentally not, not sure how to go about that. They felt awkward in themselves. They felt very, very sensitive and self-conscious. They weren't, they weren't sure of what their purpose or who they were claiming to be. Uh, and they saw it in my eyes that I saw something there. <laughs> and I just kept getting these faces over and over like, whoa, wow, you're looking at me in an interesting way. Um, but that became an unfolding. I had, I had you know, a, a transpersonal experience, mythical origins, powerful revelations of na natural world breathing, the force around me, feeling myself as a, as a child of the universe, a, a, a him. I didn't even remember my name at a certain point for a good <laughs> two to three hours. Just, you know, he that is on the hill yeah. with the music, you know. And um, so it was profound. It was, it was the most transformative experience I'd say of my life at the time, like up to this day. And, um, and part of it, I recognized, you know, I felt utterly isolated in, in academia where I didn't have a voice of expression. I handed in my master's thesis and I had 200 citations. And my, my mentor at the time was like, you're using too much of your own opinions here, Aaron. You're having your own, <laughs> many of your own thoughts. I'm like, my own thoughts. There's How dare you? Regurgitating everyone else's thoughts, you know, but, but you know that, so I felt repressed there and, you know, all these different aspects of my life were just like, these aren't lining up but so there was a big a big falling out a big transition there but also the same token it was quite terrifying having that type of gnostic revelatory expanded awareness having no one not nobody that i know that ever had this phenomenon before you know outside of biblical texts and of reading on kundalini awakenings or certain things that are so esoteric that um yeah i falling out i had some narcissism after that i had some you know isolation from others after that i had some a whole bunch of things fell out and I realized that like, hey, over time, there needs to be some real care, some real support. There has to be some real devotion to people that are having these emergent, spiritual emergent emergency experiences, transforming themselves, but having no landing pad as to how to synthesize this into their life, you know, without just Molotov cocktails everywhere they go, you know. So that's kind of origin story of me at least having my revelatory awakening through psychedelics. 
from there, you know, I became an event producer using radical creativity to create and foster experiences. Uh, I used started using uh, uh, entheogenic sacramentally with with ritual and, and Kabbalism and Hermeticism and really distilling down a purpose, intention, sitting in there, learning and growing from the muse of the medicine. So it was a big, long trajectory from that path, but that lightning bolt still got a singe on me uh, from that experience there. That's now part of my purpose in life. Man, it's such a cool story. And it's, I can tell by the way you describe it, how profound it was. Like there's certain things that people feel and it's this weird sort of, I describe it as like the terror before the sacred because it is so isolating, but you're in the presence of something so beautiful. It's And I know people use the word ineffable all the time, but there's something there that's just, it makes your skin get goosebumps and you're like, and you're so right because it's very easy to slip into the holy man syndrome of like, I got to help these people. They don't get it. They look, I feel how, I feel how sad they are. And then you realize, wait a minute, that's how I feel. I'm the one that's sad. And there's just, there's no framework around it, or at least the framework had been isolated from the sacrament for so long. People yes. got the sacrament, they brought it here, and they, they had no rails to be on. They had no lineage back to the teachers. They had no sacred rites of passage. Or they had no elders to show them the way. And yes. I think that that while I might be getting ahead of myself here, like it when I hear you explain it and I read the bio, I'm like, this guy gets it. He's had the lived experience. He's felt how isolating it was. And now he's going and trying to help other people by building some rails around it so that they can have their own transformation. Like I, and I just want to say thank you. I love that there. But maybe we can jump back a little bit to – so you go, from, you go from being a producer and figuring out these things. Like when I say to you rites of passage, like first off, how do you define that? And how do you become a person who becomes confident to create a rite of passage for somebody else? That's a great question. Yeah, absolutely, George. You know, ultimately, the 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 concept of initiation, genuine yeah. initiation, is largely lost on much of our culture and tradition. You know, yeah. outside of marriage, birth of a child. You know, and even then, it's not even as as uh, sanctimonious as one would hope. You know, in that way. But really, stepping into a place where your body, your mind, and spirit, your kind of trinity of belief, what you mm. feel, what you think, what you believe comes into a convergence point, and then it's tested with a true sense of challenge. Can that essence of what you have held as real, can that uh, withstand the burden of a deep, expansive foray into uh, a, a trial of the soul? Can you actually emerge through that space, holding on to those same limitations, beliefs, or paradigms of safety that has been either culturally passed down to you or socially accepted or peerage or mentorship said, this is your parameters of existence. And then you're placed into a circumstance where is it, is that where they are? Is that who you are? Is that the genuine capacity, capacity and nature of your deepest being is within that bubble, within that construct. And, and that's something that's really um, within indigenous traditions, within ceremonial traditions has been something that has been periodically challenged. And challenge in a, in a kind of a scaffolded way with great intentionality, mm-hmm. with great kind of consideration. Here's wisdom. Here's experiences from those who came before you. Here are those who have endured this test of self. Here are uh, parameters of how they live. Here's what they emanate as beings now that they've experienced this experience. So you're even getting aspects of the signature of what those initiations are typically 
through your communion in, in, in the village or in the tribe or in the community dynamic. Now we're kind of brought into a position where you're not going to get that organic connectivity. You're not going to get that opportunity. So you have to almost extend yourself beyond the known, beyond the comforting realms and strike out and find in different facets of your life. Where are those that can guide a space or a path that can nourish this internal drive for Gnosis, for wisdom, yearning that's birthing through me? I know that I'm beyond this particular job. I know that I'm beyond this masculine archetype of the hard work. Like there's more yeah. to me. There's depth here, you know? So that's where I feel like from my experience, being deeply involved in the Kabbalistic tradition has been very, very helpful. Because if you look at the Etz Chaim, the tree of life, the 10 Sephiroth of the tree of life, it's a beautiful ancient system from the time of Abraham, but really, you know, since the AD and then the time of 1480 is when it really started growing its true roots. But when you look at this from the top down as a creation element, from the essence of omnipresent awareness comes out from fountain and fountain of complexity, forces and forms, masculine and feminine aspects of creation until we, the final vessel, absorb that in the kingdom in earth. But all the potencies all the way back to the to the omnipresent awareness and its most undisturbed richness and state exist within us. They are birthed through us in this manifested experience. And then moving up the tree to the top, that is the path of initiation to reclaiming because this, this world is about free choice, reclaiming our connectivity to these different aspects of creation back into unified awareness and a continuum of peace. So finding that there, I found it to be very, very powerful and instrumental. So earth first Sephiroth down the bottom. Are you a steward of this world? Are you steward of your body? Are you connected to those other and respecting of their body? Do you nourish the vessel? Do you understand that you are a living vibration and that which is within you can only hold the, 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 the Gnosis, the internal wisdom can only hold if the frequency of your body can genuinely maintain that awareness. And then you move up to the mind, the foundation, you saw it. We are one step from the foundation. We're one step from a mind. Are you accountable for your thinking? Are you mm. genuinely in alignment with what I think becomes reality? So persistent, you know, thinking about licentious behavior, thinking about the neuroses and the addictions and all that is actually calling it in. The universe doesn't understand negatives. It re re understands repetition and patterns. So if you're thinking of the same thing, no, no, no. All you're saying is yes, 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 because that's <laughs> what the view of the hologram that you're permusing on and continuously contemplating on is. So second, second rites of passage initiation on that path is honor your thoughts. They are as important as anything in your life thinking about things positively, constructively, creatively, open-endedly can then create openness and abundance in the universe to allow you to then manifest an, 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 an expanded vision into reality. So these different things that I had learned deeply from that and as, and as an alchemist as well, which alchemy at the end of the day is your inner conditions. When you transmute your inner conditions to find peace, buoyancy, well-being, vibrancy, then you perceive a world that is of equal frequency to that reality. And if you uh, in, internally, you believe in the potentiality of different interdimensional beings, different connectivity to this world around us, the universe around us, expansive mystical ways, well, then it becomes accessible. It's the biology of belief. That's what we believe is what we are able to then perceive and interface with in our reality. So those two things have allowed me to learn and distill down over a decade of very, very devotional work there, different ways to create paradigms or structures or arcs, as I call them, the spark. Yeah. For people to step into, well, where are your challenge points of your reality? What are you hoping to deepen in those spaces? Utilizing an entheogen with a very, very mindful process 
to then step into those with intentionality and expand and explore those realities and come back then with a synthesized view of, okay, this is where I, I, I thought my, my limitations are. This is where I've grown into. And now it's time to synthesize myself from a new foundation. So there's a little bit of a roundabout answer yeah. there, but that's kind of how I stepped into the work and what has influenced me to be a servant of that type of work. Would you say that that is not only a system that you use for other people, but th like that's the same system that you've used for yourself? I, that's what it sounds like to me. It's like, hey, this is the path that I walked on. Let me show you how to do it. Is that, is that accurate? Absolutely. Yeah. And and the thing that's beautiful about it is like, I don't necessarily have to go to people and say, right. okay, time to learn Hebrew. Yeah, and totally. here's the first entry to the path. Like, you know, it, it's way more homogenous. Like it's more about, I understand what frequency of lesson you're hoping to commune with. Are you looking for compassionate awareness in your life and having that container for others and, and, and starting to lay down that judgment and open up to a sense of acceptance of others on their journey of earnest trying and, 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 and recalibrating that. Okay. Then I understand where that is in my inner framework. And so I can distill down then, okay, here is a pathway of learning, of support, of resources, of challenges, of questions, of reflections, all these different things to incubate on with support over a month or two months. And then you come to that crux point of a moment where you're going to step into a journey uh, and then I can support that. But yeah, uh, through my own experiences in my own particular spiritual path and and also cultivating festivals and events where yeah. these are paradigms and containers for ecstasis. They are genuinely mm. made to encapture and enrapture the senses to create uh, uh, through the confluence of art, music, ceremony, culture, communitas, you know, the bringing together yeah. of people. Here's yeah. an epicenter of radical transformation and you're seeing it all around you. And we know festivals have plenty of entheogens, you know, it's just part of the fabric of that culture, yeah. you know, that of the nature. So that's something as well that like I threw over time is creating ecosystems and conditions that help to cultivate this rising sense of growth and rising sense of emergence into one's own initiation. It's so beautifully put. And I love, I love touch, beginning to touch on this idea of festivals. I, you know, when I think of a festival, I think of time and there's, one of my favorite authors is Marseille Iliad, and he he wrote beautifully about theology and, and, in my opinion, like the psychedelic environment. And one part that I always go to, and what touched upon me with, with your idea of festivals is there's different ways we can experience time. And like a festival is like sacred time. If I think about a time where my dad, so my dad got married, his dad got married. So when I get married, it's almost like we shared that same time. And when you mm. go to a festival, it's like that time kind of stops. If you just think about time in a different way, you are experiencing sacred time with somebody else when you're in a ceremony because that ceremony has been going on for generations. And now it's your mm. turn to take part in that time. And then the time you go to work is like a, it's like a, you know, it, it's, it's a different kind of time. It's almost like you're not really experiencing it. It's not a sacred time. It's just more like, time to get up and you're not really your authentic self during that time. You are the culmination of society's beliefs that are thrust upon you at that time. Mm. And when you go to those festivals, you know, it, you really get the chance to be born into yourself in time. I'm just curious, what's your take on time? Like, is that, is that have you heard that before? Does that make sense? Oh, it does. Absolutely. No, I really love that, 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 that position there because, um, I mean, my, my favorite band from festival STS nine, they are sound tribe sector nine. And there's a day at a time in the Mayan calendar, the one day 
that's st everything stops and we yeah. recreate the universe it's called and that band plays on that day and they recreate <laughs> the universe so it's, it's pretty awesome. awesome so yeah we're talking about time and it, it brings me back also to jerry said when they play dark star and they're like hey dark star is always playing we just tune into it at the sacred time when we're on the stage and we listen for the dark star and we translate it to you again and again and again and again. But we're not creating the dark star. The dark star is and we decide to step into it together. You know, so that's that that element. That's how I always perceive the festivals. This is a training ground. This is an opportunity you to step out of the contemporary arc of your life to move into a place where people are deeply intentional about discovering their own radical creative self. You know, they, they want to learn, they want to dress and how they truly feel the muse that moves and they want to listen to that, which moves, makes their body move and their eyes tear. They want to learn from elders and yoga teachers and people that are there that can exchange their gifts of what they have to offer. They want to eat some foods and sit with their friends and contemplate life. But it is, it's in its own removed eat like, times system that's there you nourish you discover you explore and then you go in back and yet now not all festivals are created equal in that <laughs> intentionality i must say you know coachella versus your envision in costa rica or something no, very very different gatherings but at the same time if you go back to time immemorial the festivals was a time of the great gathering of the great exchange where all different leaders all different spiritual teachers all different musicians artists would come together and say hey this is what we have up to now here is our offering of what we've learned now what's next can we decide on that can we choose what that is so people always just talk about festivals and escapism like no train learn grow soak it in then when you reinsert back into contemporary movement of society you have a certain glow you have a certain perspective you have more lenses more more facets of the diamond to work from in your own mm. sense of self. And, and people feel that they start get drawing into the, the, the what you're cultivating inside of like, huh, you seem lighter, brighter, excited. Tell me about that. Tell me where's that, where's that? And then they start thinking, where's that crack in my life? Where's that, where's that place that I can go to my refuge, my sanctuary, my place of distillation of time where I can reinvent or reinvigorate yeah. and step back in. Absolutely. It's beautiful. said, you know, I, what is that thing that people feel like when 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 you're around someone that's full of spirit, whether it's at a festival or sometimes you sit down to a conversation, you're like, wow, I I I I feel this thing like, and it's almost alien a little bit because maybe it's because we haven't felt it in a long time, maybe we never cultivated it ourselves, or maybe it is alien. I don't know, but how how do you explain that feeling? You touched upon it in that last that, that conversation that point that you had, but how do you explain that feeling? What is that thing that we share between us? Well, you know, it's interesting. So the idea of communitas, that word is a Greek word, and it is the nice. essence of spirit that's connected when people come together in honesty and an honest exchange. So like when you are together with somebody, so first, you know, you have a witnessing, you have a, a witnessing Ooh. of another, they're perceiving, uh, 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 you know, something that you're hoping to orate, generate, uh, offer. And that creates a potency because there's a, a witness, an exchange, a connectivity there. And then you're also, you're kind of co-painting uh, a creative potential there. Now, there's something else, though, that I think you're speaking toward. And that is, you know, that is where someone is holding a frequency of presence and a frequency of surrender into their life experience where they can genuinely be in, uh, in trust of letting you feel their full self. 
you know, and that's something that really happens sometimes powerfully over the two or three days yeah. of a festival where someone softens and softens and sees so much and smiles and laughs so much. They're just like, I don't got any, I don't got any mask here. You know, like I, I'm, I'm just, I am just touched, you know, I am just where I'm at and I'm ready to connect with you. And here we go. And for those that cultivate this in lifestyle, you know, that my, my, I'm a, dev, a devotee in lifestyle. Like to cultivate this space of deep surrender, deep trust, deep mm-hmm. faith, and the ability to navigate from an intuitive resonance field in life. You know, I have, you know, I have a task list like everybody else, and I have things that I'm accomplishing. But when I show for the thing, all the expectations really go out the window. Like we are in a place of present creativity. Where I'm, I'm, an, I'm really kind of in love with the moment of the space. And so I'm giving myself to offer in devotion to this moment, what it can be. And when you feel that with another person, they're not like, oh, I got a 10 o'clock and, <laughs> you know, this is interesting, but I, I kind of want to check my phone because this is not as, you know, like there's a kind of things like that going on. Then it really, that frequency of presence shifts a lot. But when you can sit with somebody in their heart, that's something that really calls them home. Beyond what they say, it's what they feel in that sense of presence. And that really can do more than across political divides, social divides, all those things. It's that sense of emanation that can really bring people in because it's a signature they recognize, even if they don't hold, it's like, wait a second, I know that. That feels like home. That feels, hmm, what is that? You know, and that really calls people in closer. Mm-hmm. It's interesting that you put it that way. When I think of surrender and I think of spirit, I often think of the word sacrifice that kind of follows that. Mm-hmm. And it seems to me that you know, this word sacrifice seems to be all over the ideas of spirituality or fe- sometimes festivals, but rites of passage. It's almost like, and it's so broad because sometimes you're sacrificing a part of yourself. Sometimes people that are healing their trauma are trying to work past things that they have sacrificed. Sometimes we look at the lost, the people that we lost as a sacrifice. Mm. What do you think is the relationship between sacrifice and spirituality? I know it's kind of a broad question, but you can take it any angle you like. Yeah, that's a great question. You know, so I think surrender means two different things in the East and West is kind okay. of where I think I want to start that. It's like in the, in the West, when you consider surrender, you're considering almost the relinquishing of power, like lay down your arms. You're now yes. under the subjugation or control of an other, whatever that be like, you know, surrender, give it up. Um, in the East, it's like surrender means like I am surrendering my perception of control. Like I am, my assumption of control is now surrendered. I am not in control. I am surrendering to the fact that something greater than that is moving through, uh, through the vessel and through creation is actually in the reins. And so my ability to have to understand everything or control everything or even need to know is let go. You know, and and for some reason, something really powerful happens when you let go in that way, then you start to understand more, more than more than the mind can actually necessarily encapsulate or maybe equally partition off and say, this is my working knowledge of. But there's a sense of knowingness or understanding that brings a peace because you let go of a reins of something that never had reins of to begin with. Now, that can be perceived of a sacrifice. I am sacrificing mm-hmm. my control over these things or my uh, sacrificing my ability to have surety over that this relationship works like this and this person is going to be there for me like this and this is how my house has to be run to be right and you're like and if you let go of that you open your hands all and say I am now surrendering and honoring that this can all change we are rivers we are we're in flow with life we are in continuous transformation 
by thinking that anything is held that is uniquely ours, that usually blows up in one way or another. So the sacrifice is almost uh, an assumption of something you never had to begin with. You know, the thing, you know, <laughs> that's so true. You're sacrificing something that wasn't even yours to even sacrifice most of the time, you know, or are you considering that in the, to begin with? So it's really tricky how that navigates. Now, I can say that what you can be devotional disciplined with is then you start to juxtapose, well, am I sacrificing the double fudge Sunday because I have a freedom to eat the double fudge Sunday? I could, am I sacrificing six hours of my favorite sitcom because I can do what I want, you know, like, and I can have that environment thing. But then you look at, well, is freedom doing everything you want or is freedom actually honoring the gift and expanding, exploring through it, exploring through the gift, exploring through what you hold, you know, exploring through what you came to your to, to accomplish. You know, so it's a really interesting thing because, you know, some places, yeah, I do sometimes sacrifice some of the things that I would like. I would say I put it maybe in that mindset, but then I realized it's like, well, Actually, though, when I engage with the thing, because mine always tries to tell you, all you want to do is be comfortable. You just want to be comfortable, Aaron. Just chill. Like, of course. But then once you start chill, it's like, I don't want to chill. I, I never really just want to chill. What are you You're talking right. about, mind? What are you talking about? Let's get back to it. You know? So it's it's so funny, though. But ultimately, at the end of the day, I think that there is value to looking at things and saying, what is in deepest alignment genuinely and moving those directions? Because a lot of times people come into psychedelic journeys for healing. They're like, I want to get rid of these patterns and habits and ways of being that I want to let go of. I want to almost sacrifice them up, put them back into the earth, you know, for fertilizer, create the space and then reconnect with more things there. And so it depends how you use that terminology, but I would say, you know, keeping the mindset that we are not necessarily always in control or holding on to things to let them go. We can choose what aligns, what resonates. We can look at the view of what, what our path would be with one way or another, but I think it more of it is accepting more as opposed to losing more, accepting that you're more. Flip that, invert that. Actually, can you expand to the greatness you are? Can you do spread those wings to the awesomeness you can create and keep widening that? We don't need to get rid of too much all the time, but we need to accept more, I think, in our lives. That's really well said. I love the fact that you started off by defining the terms from two different angles. It seems that that happens a lot. We lose a lot in translation, especially when we're coming together from different cultures or different continents, words like discipline, sacrifice, surrender. It's very easy for two people to go down two different paths right when they first meet and they start using this shared terminology with different meanings like that. Yeah. And you know, when I think about that, when we stay on the topic of language for a moment and I tie in the idea of festivals, one of the most poetic and romantic things I always think about is the the Eleusinian mysteries. I love to read about that and how, you know, emperors would go with slaves and everybody had the right to go to this festival. And in my mind, I've created this idea of an amphitheater where you're sitting around with people and you've taken some sort of, you know, heightening awareness, heightening substance. And you're watching Persephone and Demeter and this child dies. And even though there's no words exchanged, I can look over at you, a stranger that I don't know, and I have goosebumps and you have goosebumps and we see the same thing, man, for the first time in our lives, we're seeing it together. And that bonds us in a way that no words can. And I'm wondering, it, is, it seems to me, like I think that that's what you're doing. And I'm, that's why I'm so stoked to get to see and talk to you is because I've read about what you're doing and I automatically equated it with my vision of what's happening there. <laughs> so maybe we can talk a little bit about what you're doing in ceremonies, but before we get there, Maybe you could address the idea of the felt 
presence of the other and observing something together. Does that kind of make sense? Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, I love that you brought up the Eleusinian Mysteries. <laughs> yeah, you know, that is the penultimate ceremonial container, rites of passage for an entire civilization for yeah. two thousand years. You yeah. know, uh, absolutely. And and so and, and in that way too, it, two things. It looks at the power of intentional craft around a container. How profound yeah. that can be. As Socrates had shared, I believe, is like. It wasn't philosophy or the theology or democracy or, or or warfare, Perez. It was the Eleusinian Mysteries, which is the heart of the Athenian Greece. Like you make a festival so good that they say that like that is that's the power of what these containers hold. Absolutely. And you then think about you're going into an initiatory theater. You're going in there with all walks of life and they have the secret of immortality. And it's held so tight-lipped that, you know, the penalty is death outside of this theater, like literally to share what is revealed. So they go in, they imbibe on the kukion, they have this profound uh, vision, elevated experience uh, of, the, of the, the ceremonial theater of acting out creation. And, and, and as you're saying there, there is something to be said and, and, and great shows, you know, contemporary great shows, artists do this as well, is they create an archetypal experience that is so composite of all these motifs of death and rebirth of revelation of the divine relationship of the of the not of the inward growth or gnosis of the self of the phoenix death you know like all these things are brought to the fore so pronouncedly that everybody there starts to almost attune to the the muse that's being presented this this voice this logos that is there mm. and in their own world they're going through a scenario of how they culturally or how they can interpret that message in them. And they might be doing it in their mind with friends and loved ones, or they may be doing it if there's a mystic mind out there with angels and demons or, or with a mythological yeah. beings or deities or fae, or depending on what your orientation is, you're reenacting the logos or the muse presented in your own way. So that it leaves room for everybody to be simultaneously initiated in their own experience with a frequency that is similar. Now, everybody has the same exact vision, but they have a sense of what that narrative is. It's drawing them inward. They're considering things. There's lamentation in the music. Oh, it's bringing them to a place of heartfelt crisis and nostalgia. Then it rises up into a bittersweet. And they remember their dear friends and allies along the way. And then it triumphantly peaks and they're like, I am an avatar and I am reborn. I'm ready to, I'm ready to be here, you know? like, And, and, and so you can hear that in the muse of the entire experience. And so- that way of creating that, I think, is is profound. It's as old as time. It's it's our way to how do we explain these cycles of civilization and and withstand the the dusty pages that are blown to, blown away. We create this ceremonial theater and we we create these these situations. And that's what I was always doing as a festival producer. Is like, how can I bring in these different traditions? frame them in a flow across the schedule. Four stages are doing this at all times. And then the parade goes off and the fireworks peak and this person plays jazz and this person plays. Funk. And all of a sudden there's like a moment that's like a, 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 like a crackle occurs. And it's like every, you can feel the sense of release. Everyone's like, I, I'm no longer tracking this. I am just present and I am in the flow. Like I am now riding the wave of sensation of what the magic is here. And I'm listening to my inner self on how to tune and navigate. So whether that's happening in an individual journey in a larger ecstatic experience, there's that moment of, sur of surrender <laughs> once again, yeah. as trust in that innate capacity we have to adapt and shift and flow and, and birthing into something greater, something greater that you than you stepped into and, and on the front end.
I think I think one thing that is amazing that you have probably experienced that most people haven't, and I'm sure everybody has their own unique experiences, but I want to I want to throw this out at you. You get to experience it on a level that's almost third person because you're a person that's facilitating it, you're participating in it, and you're also watching it. Like, what is that like? <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, that's what I think makes the most powerful. So I could even shift this a little bit into a ceremonial cultivation yeah. of creation, because I think that's where it really becomes even more pronounced. You yeah. know, from the festival perspective, that's so true. I mean, I have been touched deeply by festivals to a yeah. place where, and I've, I've taken aspects of like, that's amazing. Let's, let's bring that, let's bring that. And then cultivate it into my version of this alchemical stew that is this iteration of a festival. Right. And as I'm exploring that, and I'm thinking about, wow, people are moving through this experience. Where are they going to go next? Where can, what can happen? How can I position things to right. enliven and enrich and bring this to a four? Right. Now that really, I think happens experientially in the ceremonial container into an entirely other dynamic because there, there's still, even in a festival environment, there's a lot of outliers, a lot of erroneous things that can happen. That's why it's a little wild west. It's not yeah. for everybody. I don't go across saying that everybody should do psychedelics into a festival. It is, it is an intense environment. It's a frontier. You have to take a lot of discretion over self, safety, around the people that you're with, honoring of the, the true needs of the body in, in strenuous environments. Like There's a lot of things to consider when moving into that space to ensure that you are hale and whole to have that type of experience. But in, in a ceremonial framework of a container, this is something that like when I started moving into the microcosm of crafting these experiences, I really feel the potency of what you're talking about there. It's like I, from my experiences of however many journeys I've had with many, many compounds mm -hmm. served by beautiful facilitators and sometimes rogue and on my own and doing my own initiations, some of which that I felt were wise at the time and some were not, were actually kind of disruptive and fracturing and had to pick myself up in pieces, you know, and so did yeah. my family for a little bit, you know, like, so things like that have occurred. But when I'm now cultivating a deeply intentional ceremonial container and I'm looking at the rhythm of someone's life that I'm working with together and we're asking these deep questions about their own family relationships, trauma, their belief structures, where they're hoping to expand, what they're wanting to let go of, who they see themselves as truly being. And, and I'm synthesizing this in my mind and, and I'm, I'm looking at my ceremonial dynamic. I'm looking at my instruments and I use a lot of sacred fragrances, olibanum, frankincense, cedar, myrrh, you know, cedar smell. That's like the fresh forest on a, on a beautiful day. Frankincense, it's like the sun shining on, on a beautiful morning. Like thinking about what are the conditions hmm. with medicine bowl and rattle and drum and rain stick and, and, and all these things that I can create for an ecosystem to meet them in their odyssey of their internal journey as an ally, create texture, create an artistry in this experience that really activates their inner muse, that gets their deep, innocent curiosity alive. And that sense of things have to be a certain way to let go, to fade a little bit, and then create an architecture through a very carefully curated soundtrack of music and empowering language. And this thing, when you're very, very open and susceptible very, very considerate of when you say things and why and how to someone that's in a particular state. So understanding where there's empowering language or an alliance language that's set in and different things in that condition that help to nurture uh, a greater po potential for that breakthrough, for that opportunity to have that, that, that revelation experience. So that's where I've really come to understand the power of the container. Now, I, 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 I definitely honor the therapeutic approach in which 
there is a clinical setting and there's safety there and there's a protocol. I mean, I think ethical, ethically, it's a very, very well done orchestrated maps protocol. Others that are coming online with, with really solid protocols, I really appreciate that. The one component I think that there is missing from that, and it's not by fault of anyone at home because it's a difficult skill to cultivate at the end of the day, is the artistry of a genuine ceremonial facilitator that is listening to the language of the song being sung in a journey and is understanding how do I then create different conditions with infusing my own my own craft and my own deep sense of knowing of where they are. I could feel somebody and they're like, oh, they're in the perinatal rebirth right now, you know, I could, and, and here we go. How do I welcome them in with solidarity and truth and, and trust and safety? What do I need to, to do that? Like these different things, I think are some things that are really powerful and vibrant in the ceremonial container that is unique to that particular container that really could help work people through the deeper transpersonal rites of passage states um, into, into a framework of, of, of embodiment that can be really quite profound. Um, so that's that's the space that I found to be a condition that I'm really juiced in right now where I'm working toward. <laughs> that that's fascinating to think about. Like, how do you is that's you know, a lot of the times lived experience is in fact the best teacher. And I'm wondering, like, that's such a powerful position to be in, and it requires a lot of responsibility to be that person because there's a lot of temptation there. There's a lot of intoxication there. Just yeah. being that in that presence, like it's a lot of responsibility. How, how have you, how have you learned to deal with that? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. In <laughs> fact, you know, that's one of the things that I think is the most challenging and precarious nature of, of that ceremonial dynamic. You know, you have someone there that is incredibly vulnerable in an incredibly intimate position. Um, they're raw, they're, they're open, uh, sometimes disoriented, you know, in different ways. And as they're trying to navigate through what their belief is and where they are. Um, and you then have such a sacred, uh, uh, I think, uh, space of can you respect the depth of what that is? Now, I think from my perspective, that's what makes the experiential psychedelic experience absolute essential, you know, for people that think that they can hold this space and they have not gone through their own deep work. I don't even know what to tell you, you know, like I can't, I don't even know how to begin that conversation because there isn't, you can't be on going through somewhere and be like, Oh, I think they're on per perinatal matrix three. I think I've read this in page 86 of way of psychonaut. Um, hold on a second here. I, I gotta see what I'm going to do. Like you, you have to feel the gravity of how important that is. Even if you haven't gone through all those initiation spaces, the seriousness, the subtle nature of care, the compassion, it has to be genuine. It has to touch you to, to feel like, uh, like I want to hold that space. Now, on the second half of that is, you know, when you're looking at the, the ability to really process through what people are moving through, it's a lot. You know, I live in the alchemical kitchen all the time and it's not an easy life. You know, it's not something that I, you know, doing sessions twice a week for a year it's a lot, you know, people, people train for three months or six months to just get ready to go with you for a day when you're doing it twice in a week, you know? And so it is a lifestyle. It's a lot. What has come to firm solidity for me is the four agreements are very, very important for me. I'm not sure if people are familiar with the four agreements, Toltec wisdom, you know, at the end of the day is that uh, impeccability with, with who I am, or at least a wild earnestness to be there you know, in that place, not making assumptions about anybody's path and leaving judgment and checking it at the door. You know, I've had people that have been Baptist Bible belt, 70 something year old come in 
and have a beautiful, enriched, mystical, profound experience that challenges what they've ever thought and you would never think is possible. But if you held a certain prescriptive analysis of who they are and the type of ceremony you had to hold because it's them and not giving them the full bandwidth of what you can do because whatever that is, then it wouldn't have allowed that opportunity to occur. It wouldn't have allowed that blossoming. You know, so not making assumptions about others is, is, is incredibly important that not personalizing things. That's probably the triple underline when people are going through it. It's not about me. You know, they could get upset. They could say all kinds of things. They could, you know, have an, they could have a, a full regressed experience of a rape. I mean, that has actually happened to me before. Talk about intensity, you know, when you're in there, someone looking at you like, oh my God, are you going to do what you think you're going to do? And then you have to. Uh, hold the inner stoicism and ambiance of respect and dignity and ethics and clarity that that is absolutely not you are. And in fact, you know, actually support them and alleviating and diffusing that energy. I mean, these are circumstances that are quite pronounced. And as a servant in the space, and also as a person that has to genuinely empathize with the gravity of what they're going through, that's where you have to have a code. You have to have an ethical code that you live by in your life, in your own progression, and in how you serve in that space and, and have it to be as unfallible as possible. Because when people are going through experience, there's no real sense of how deep, how, what lane that's going to take. And you know, if it's an inner child and they regress to a two or three-year-old and they're literally like a toddler over there, can you be kind and, su and quiet and simple enough that that little three-year-old feels safe? You know, you, you can't be discerning and, mm, and this has to, no, you have to be there like the kids in the room and the kids in the room. And, the, and, and this is the first time the kid's been in the room for 30 years. So, so if you're not in a place of innocently holding and honoring that little boy or that little girl, it's going to run back. It's going to go back in there and they're going to have to, you know, try again 10 years from now to see if they could coax it back out again. You know, so these things are so, so powerful and so sensitive. So that ethical code and living by those agreements for me has allowed me to live in that condition where I could feel safe and solid and confident to hold that space. Yeah, that's those are some really valid points that, you know, a lot of people get to see transformation from the outside or sometimes they get to have their own transformational experience. But it's unique to get to hear somebody's point of view who is in the room with the transitional experience from different kind of mindsets. And, you know, I heard an interesting interview a while back between Terrence McKinnon and Rondas. And Terrence asked a question to Rondas that I'm going to ask to you. And that question is, how do you like having this rap put on you? Like, I mean, are you always the facilitator? I mean, doesn't as, as you continue to do what you're doing and you help a lot of people, but people don't see you as an individual. All of a sudden, they see this master of ceremonies. How do you how do you like that? Is that something that is difficult to deal with, or is it something that you're always working on, or how do you like people putting hmm. th that on you? Wow, yeah, that's that's a that's a great question. You know, like I think for me, um, a couple things here that I think is important. One is that I do perceive after being in so much ceremony and that life is a genuine ceremony. Like for me, there's not really a a stop and start to the continuum of what that is for me. You know, trying my best to acknowledge that we are always in a sacred space. We are always exchanging energy, ideas, insights, emotion. We're always learning and growing. We're actually, you know, in fact, that is the only constant, <laughs> you know, that there is. And you could either perceive that as being a happening, that's just a happening without, you know, uh, purpose or intent or fuel in the fire of what that is. Or you can embrace that as that this is a, an important exchange. This is a sacred exchange. 
you know, and, and we're here for a reason. And I'm not quite sure why you've intersected with me today. But if I can make this two or three minutes valuable, you know, by by being honest and being present, then that's what I'm going to do. And that's what I think. So that perspective of me, I feel uh, very much. And I guess in the wrong that sense is the devotion to that aspect of my life, I feel like is infused to something I can't turn on and off. You know, it's just something that I have a deep mm. love for, a consideration for. And when I move into a formalized aspect of the ceremony, it's a it's a step of like breathing. You know, it's another step of breathing fresh air, changing the certain kind of going into it. Now, one thing I can say on the larger scope of that is, though, that like I still have an amazing experiential time in my life, though. I, I'm not an ascetic. You know, I'm not mm. I, I you know, I'm not completely censured in my own experiential awareness. Um, I love still going to shows and having experiences. You know, I love connecting with my, my wife is, uh, you know, she's an amazing uh, avatar of a person herself. She works as the vice president for American Foundation of Suicide Prevention. And mm. she's a badass DJ and rides yeah. a trike and like, you know, and navigates life uh, on, on a frontier of her own like expression. That's deeply inspiring. And, and, and I love that. I love when people can, you know, if you're a pirate, then you're an excellent pirate. And you're, you know, wh- wh- whatever you are, if that's authentic to you and you express it, and you do it in a way that respects and honors others, we have a consciousness to explore for a reason. You know, we, we, we're, we're actually starting to acknowledge or reconnect with that side of ourselves that there's inner navigators as much as outer navigators. And that's important for us to, to discover new ideas and new things. So I do live uh, still a life that I consider a lot of fun and really beautiful and very, very joyous. Um, and I'm still not going to break my code in that process. You know, and 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 I think that's what even where it's more important. If I'm in the middle of a rapturous environment, ecstatic environment, people trying to bend things, I'm like, I'm super good, man. Thank you and much love. <laughs> that actually is doing more work right there. That right there, like, wow, like in this moment where it's easy and no one would care, and it, you could do what you want, you still choose to do this, and that creates a condition that reaffirms the value in there. You know, so I think that for me, like the rap is I'm Aaron in all the ways I can. <laughs> Um, right. But I can't, yeah, I'm not turning it off anymore. You know, I'm right. just, I'm going to live it, you know, and how that is. Mm-hmm. That's a good answer. I like that. You know, as I, I've been very fortunate too, Aaron, in my life. I got, I've been getting to speak to so many cool people and it's been, yeah. it's given me this sort of, you know, standing on the foothill and the mountain of dreams, just getting to participate in some and listen to other people. And it just seemed like there's this new sort of spiritual awakening and on some level, it's so beautiful and so profound and has so much opportunity. But then when I turn my head a little bit and I look over to this next valley, there's some naysayers that are like, oh, man, this is very dangerous. Like, you know, we got here. This is where we got in the 60s. And then we had Jim Jones, and Charles Manson and stuff like that. What do you say to the people that that are saying, look, this is this is dangerous and we there will be another Manson coming up? And what there are these naysayers. What would you tell people that are in that camp? You know, it's, that's a really great conversation here. Um, you know, I talked about Michael Garfield on Future uh, uh, Future Fossils podcast as well. He's an, uh, you know, he's kind of really wanting to explore this frontier. It's like, what happens if there's radical uh, taking the muzzle off of consciousness exploration, like collectively? Like, yeah. what happens there? It's like, oof, you know, that that is a, a heavy lift. He's like, in, in many ways, I do feel that we'd have to go through a collective infancy where mistakes mm. are made. And, and consideration things are had the, the done that aren't necessarily aligned with a you know uh, the the human 
culture of of inherent kindness and equanimity that we all hope is there, you know, like, (laughs) (laughs) um, you know, and there being an adolescent phase. But I think in many ways, you know, given the nature, I feel like inherently of the natural plant that has these aspects within it and intelligence that is within it, that often draws us into looking at the dissonance or looking Mm. at that which is not settled or aligned or what that is and trying to reconcile that. You know, whether it's the composting mushrooms coming through the body and looking for the detritus, because that's what mushrooms do. You know, they're looking for what needs to shake out and go back into the earth and regenerate itself, you know, or or the ayahuasca, the vine that's moving through the body and exploring where are there parts of your code that are no longer active to you, recognizing you are a child of this world. You are living part of mother. Can you can you embrace her once again? You know, I think there's things inside of that that draw draw us into those places. Now, are there those that are going to, because of their own arc of choices and karmic cycle, make poor decisions? I do think so, but they tend to isolate and sift themselves out early on. And in some ways too, I, I can, I can share even from my past experience, those are often pathways or lessons toward greater healing. Inevitably, you know, it might be a messier path and things mm-hmm. go with atrocities, but I'm also not here to say, you know, what exactly is the the right thing for even all, everyone to do in their own path of healing? Like sometimes you have to split the ground and to crack the self and let the light in, you know? Um, so there's a lot there, but I think at the end of the day, when this conversation is moving forward is, can you trust us to be our full mm-hmm. selves? We have systematically compartmentalized our psyche to a digestible, comfortable, consistent and controlled space that has caused mania and psychosis collectively all around the world because people do not feel like they can express themselves safely, do not even know know how to. They have this deep yearning for a sense of interconnection that they don't even know where it is. They have the wedigo, the material man disease, as the indigenous say, where everything external is supposed to feed and satiate some sense of value and it's not touching it and they don't know where that void is even there. So where that needs to go is, inside dig deeper learn more expand grow inside there not everyone's going to make it you know not everyone's going to find their 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 centerpiece in that but i feel a hell of a lot more people will and a lot more create with that radical creativity that will come from that will be able to create systems way outside of the box and containers for working together proactively with people to support these revelations because right now our entire mental health system is reactive so that's another thing too. Moving into the proactive and anticipating that renaissance would be a lot more of a vibrant, I think, mindset than than just seeing what might happen and reacting to it. Yeah, it seems that idea of reaction is a flawed bug in the system that has been keeping us from being proactive. Which which brings me to this idea of you know when you look at this sort of psychedelic renaissance that's moving forward, you know sometimes I see it as a high tide like sometimes people who do mushrooms like myself included sometimes it comes in waves and i and i think about these waves of energy and i kind of see sometimes i see what's happening now is like the second wave from the 60s and it's getting higher but other times i think to myself wait a minute maybe this is a tsunami coming in and just clearing everything out do you have a like do you think it's more of a tsunami or is it more of a high tide that's a, that's a, I love your analogy. <laughs> These are great, man. Thank you. Uh, awesome, George. Um, you know, 
I think ultimately right now we're looking at a critical mass moment okay. in, our, in our existence. You know, like 60s, I think were really important to re-energize a sense of that we are more than this structured person. Like that was the first real break out of that. Start spiritual exploration, re-engaging with the plants, re-engaging with music and culture, reconnecting with the self as like I'm a Again, I'm a family member to society and humanity. The colors, these these different boundaries they tried to place upon us, they're amorphous at best, and they're actually not honor, honoring of the gravity of us being a human relationship and family. So I think that renaissance really kind of rekindled that movement, you know, and being so frontier and novel and expansive at the time, there was a sense of like, well, where does that all land? How does that integrate? And I think that was... The integration consideration now is at an entirely other pronounced level, I think, than it was then. Before then, it was just turning on and tuning in and exploring and expanding. But there wasn't ever the question about, well, what about when you start to regulate back to an equilibrium? Well, what do you do every day? You know, like, oh, you know, like, so so it was so renaissance in the, in the kind of explosive uh, dynamic that no one thought about that that recalibration. Now, I think because of our lesson through there, it's a lot more, hey, this is a catalyst. It's not all about the fireworks. It's not all about, hey, I'm going to go in and just have this radical experience and keep radically experiencing like all things. It's like, no, I'm going to go in and explore and expand and grow and learn and let go and all these important things. But it's really about then how do I enter back in? How do I go back to my family, my career, my community, my profession? Like, how do I step back in there in a way that this experience informs impact? It allows me to now be more generative, more, you know, gracious and peaceful and great. And, and all these things that I feel because of an experience, because I want to live well, not I just want to, you know, ride, ride the, the, the purple lightning all the time. You know, so I think that that's where I think that the movement is moving is like we've watched it happen in different iterations. And now we're coming to a place where we want to elevate our, our collective consideration of who we are as people to a new paradigm. And that's where I feel like this the tsunami effect is actually kind of more accurate because no one wants to land in the same position. Like ultimately we're all stretching and we're not exactly sure where this is landing, but we're looking at, you know, the climate crisis and we're looking at mental health crisis and we're looking at political uh, uh, insanity and all these different things transpire. It's like, we can't even land near where we are. So let's keep stretching and figure this out on the fly at the power, at, at the speed of dream together in this experience so that then when we essentially find that recentering, our normative frame of reference is in a new paradigm, you know? And, and so I think that's the yearning. That's the deep call of everyone, whether or not we're going to strive and make that happen. You know, there's, there's, you know, I think there's a lot of momentum in that space, but I just know that at this point, I find it to be the counterpoint to a lot of the dystopia we're experiencing out there is this Renaissance in awareness. That's, that's, that the psychedelics is helping to really engender cultivate and steward in many ways. Yeah, that's a that's really well put. I, I once I heard the the wave of the '60s told to me in a story, and I want to tell that story to you. Are you okay on time? Like I, I know I'm I'm oh, bringing yeah. you an hour. Okay, good. Because I I feel like I'm just scratching the surface of our conversation here. <laughs> so I was told the story of the '60s in like this cool story, and it's a short story. I'll share it with you, and then I want to get your opinion to see if 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 you think it it mirrors what happened in the '60s. And I only know what I've read. I'm 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 48, so I wasn't alive, but it was told to me this way. 
imagine a a, a warmongering general in the Far East, and he is going from town to town conquering, and he's extremely brutal. And the only people that put up a fight to him and his army are the people of faith, are like the monks. And so he makes a point that every town he goes to just slaughter the monks in a way that is heinous. And by the time he makes his way three quarters of the way through the country, he comes up on this small town where he sees the leaders of that town and they welcome him and they say, oh, your mighty warlord, all of the monks have fled into the hills except for one. The warlord is furious. He's like, where is this monk? They're always, he's in the ashram right around the corner. So the, he, the warlord, boom, opens the doors and there's a monk just standing there. And the warlord, just rage in his eyes, walks up to the monk and he says, don't you know who I am? I could have my sword run through your belly without blinking an eye. And the monk just says, and don't you know who I am? I am the guy that have, could have your sword run through my belly without blinking an eye. And the moral of the story is that when the people came, when the powers came for the people in the 60s, they ran for the hills. And they, they were like, you could die during this game. And the amount of power, the amount of establishment power overpowered the people that were there to fight. And I'm, I'm wondering, is that something that could happen now? Like I see the money flowing into psychedelics. I see the ideas of patents beginning to take shape and I can see the almost the infighting a little bit in the psychedelic community. And I'm wondering if that's a possibility. Are, are we going to be the monk that stands there and says, don't you know who I am? I'm hopeful that we will be. Man, that's a story. <laughs> yeah, right? Is that a good one? <laughs> really good, yeah. You know, I, I hope to think that we can. And the reason being is that, like, it matters so much now. Yeah. And the, the fact of the matter is that the crisis is so blaring and in the face that it's like, yeah. you know, where do you need to look to see if we need to change, like what, what part of any part of what we're doing here is actually working, you know, like, and you know, like if you, there's just not, there's not any gravity toward any argument that the system is designed and working as it should be, you know, whether you're looking at icons, whether you're looking at athletes, whether you're looking at, you know, any component of this entire system is fractured and, and it's causing so much distress. And so at this point, standing in the center is saying, no, we need to have radical change. We need to make sure that there are alternative means to live and that you have to know about them. You can't just run and that's where the festivals and the dead and all these cultures are. It's like you have to run to the heels to find yourself. Like, yeah. and you have to find yourself, you know, in, in, in non-optimal conditions, you know, one flip-flop still on and broken three days later because you didn't pack enough water because you didn't consider things like, like all these things happen and then you can maybe make your limp your way back to society, try to figure it out. It's like we, that doesn't work anymore all the time. We have to also sit in the belly of it all and say, these are alternative ways to do this. We're not just a bunch of, you know, wild, you know, wild primal people that are trying to tell you to change the world. No, we're actually living sustainably. You know, when I came out of the psychedelic closet in 2020 on a Facebook, LinkedIn, all the things I was like, Hey y'all, you, you know what I've been doing with all these cool events and all these things I've been creating. And I got three daughters and you know, the family that you, you know, and love the cruises. I've been doing psychedelics for 12 years. It's amazing. It has changed my life in every single way. It is something that I feel can be a beautiful catalyst for, for change for those that are serious about growth. 
and that are doing it in a way of deep intention and consideration. Like, and I came out, I, and I was at the time, I, I never sweat so much in my life hitting the enter button. I was a full body sweat. I was, you know, like in getting out there, person after person after person was like, thank you for standing up and, and, and speaking your truth. And I know you're not just, uh, you know, a, 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 a radical, whatever, you know, losing it. Like, we know you, you know, you, you've been around for a long time. You've done some things that are really sweet for our, our family and they've grown up with you and whatnot. And so that was super empowering to feel the energy of that, because I do feel that we are coming at a place where people want innovative avenues to explore. They want different ways to experience things. And they know that the same, that SSRIs, the SNRIs, the talk therapy, all these different things are just not hitting the heart of the true um, of that true loss that's just being felt there. So I think at this point, because we have the research is so deeply well-established and so, you know, consistently over and over again, deeply affirmed on the efficacy of psychedelics and PTSD and complex PTSD and anxiety and, and all, you know, all those different things that are coming forward. And then you have a, a real strong culture of people that have been transforming through music and arts and culture for a very, very long time. And you look out there and say, who's a grateful deadhead, your lawyer, your police officer, yeah. your, your, your mayor, you know, so people can be in psychedelic culture and live well and, and have a, and have a great sustainable accountable lifestyle. You know, so I think a lot of those isms, taboos, stigmas, they're just starting to wash away and people are just like, well, what genuinely works and what is actually showing up for others? You know, people like heroic hearts coming out there and helping yeah. our veterans with amazing projects you're in at right now that is just showing people it's like, it doesn't matter, red, blue, you know, if you're a survivor of this, like you're welcome and this can change things. You know, I, I just see so much of that happening, so many lenses and iterations that I feel like that Buddha has a group in the room, not just even a solo at this point of people willing to stand up for it. Yeah, that's awesome. I'm, I'm glad you put it that way. I, I do think that people being comfortable about talking about what's changed their life in a positive way it's so fascinating to me that like, like that can be stigmatized. Like, here's this thing that helped you. Like, wh what? Why is there this negative cloud just hanging over it? And you know, when, and then as soon as I think about that, I begin to think about why we've taken ceremonies out of childhood. Like, it's almost like, you know, like I guess there's are two different questions. But the second question seems more interesting at this point for me. So, at least in my life, I. I didn't have a bar mitzvah. I my daughter, my sister didn't have a quinceanera, and these are just these these are just echoes of what's left of that institution. Yeah. Why don't like? Do you see it maybe reemerging this idea of ceremonies for childhood, and why do you think they were taken out of the, of the education system? Well, you know, I mean, I think it wasn't even like a strategic decision. Right. It's like when you get into a position where the 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 emphasis around life gets really kind of compartmentalized mm. into material yeah. value and and you know and status and these different things it starts moving away from experiences that marked experiences create these moments these kind of passages and then when you have them you you are celebrated and ushered into a new way and i just think over time it was like well, those experiences are fun, but they, they lost their sense of purpose. The why that mm. people would do these things because the culture and the, and the, and the, and the emphasis on materials or whatever necessarily that, that, that driving industrial cultural complex is right. um, just uh, overemphasize any need for demarcation of all these considered minor 
uh, aspects of growth throughout people's lives. And, and then the how to even do that started to lose. You know, you go back three or four mm -hmm. generations and, you know, you have all these different cool uh, rites of passage and ways holidays were done. I even know my, my you know, my cousins and grandparents, you know, older growing up and uh, Puerto Rican Christmas. It was very different. Three Kings Day. Like there was a way that they did things that had this like mystical quality to it that, over time, you know, you just lose the gravity of that from generation to generation because it's not perceived as important or central to the current culture, you know? So I think paradigm-wise, that's what we lost, you know, in this contemporary paradigm. It's like, why celebrate the small things when at the end of the day, it's about getting them into this lane and this seat in the bus and getting this particular figure and, you know, and this particular lifestyle, you know? And, and so they're looking for more homogenization as opposed to radical explosion of that individual into whoever they are, you know? And, and that's part of the mindset of the indigenous of past civilizations is who is this young de deity in form here that has come to grace this planet? What are their mm -hmm. profound gifts of awareness and artistries and hunting skill? Like, what is it that they have inside to gift our, mm. our society. Let's put them through some challenges. Let's put them through some experiences that maybe that that side of them will awaken to us, and then they will be a leader like this, or they will support this part of our our our, our community, or they will they will inform our tribe from their unique wisdom they acquire on this trail. Like so, it was much more looking at an individual with this question of how can I accelerate them into being the best them they yeah. can be. And now the paradigm is how can I make them fit into the paradigm that might make the most money and do the most things, you know, for, for, the, for us or for the, whatever that is, you know, whatever the beast is, uh, that whole situation is, you know? So I think that's kind of where that shift has come. But I feel like that's where the yearning of people feel incomplete yeah. when they get to certain parts of life. We're like, this can't be it. This can't be it. Where's there's much more to me and my expression. And here I am at the desk, you know, and that, and that's what happens. Yeah, that's really well said. It, you know, when you start looking at the way we treat our kids like Pavlovian dogs with bells and whistles and cookie cutter jobs and obedient workers and don't ask that question why. That's a dangerous question. Just do it. Just read this, okay? Read. Yes. Why don't you just learn from everybody else's experiences and don't have them yourself? Like, right. it's just, it's so sad to me. But on one level, it's sad. But on another level, this is where I begin to see the high tide idea coming back. Like it's, it's our opportunity to get to rediscover the how and even reinvent the how some way. And in reinventing the how we're able to put our own twist on it a little bit. And I think that's really exciting. That's, that seems to be something that if there was an Aaron Cruz middle school or an Aaron Cruz elementary school that they would be teaching there. <laughs> I love it, man. I love it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I think that's exactly right. Reinventing the how, looking at innovation and radical creativity as your engine to growth. You know, if you tell somebody, if you put them in these in these opportunities to be like, well, what skills do you actually love and have an affinity toward? You know, Montessori does some of this to a degree, but, sure. you know, it's even taking it to the next level. It's like, well, what do you have an affinity of? Ooh, what really, you know, what do you feel like there's gravity for and you love? Ooh, let's surround you with opportunities to express that. And you then inform us how that feels and like different ways. I think that that's the kind of envisioning that I think is going to be necessary, but even in an adult sense, you know, and that's right. half the clients are coming to me is like, look, I have passions. I have purpose. Nothing I'm doing in life has to do with any of that, but I can't figure out how to get from over here to over here, or at least making these roads right. come closer because it's eating my existence away. I'm going in, I'm punching a clock 
what I'm doing is not even the, the job is not even ethical. There's nothing there that fulfills my purpose. And like, I've got these things that I like to do like, that I'm awesome at. And they, and, and, and everybody's telling me they're not valuable. Is that true? Like, is, is that reality? Because wow, that's sad, you know? And I, and, and I agree. And it's like, that's part of the thing is like, how can we have people trust in their own innate creative true sense coming forward and, and make sure that they know that's valuable. Not only that's valuable, that's going to drive us forward. We need you. We need yeah. all of you to come out and show us new ways to do this life thing together collectively. And often it takes that radical break out of the contemporary norm. Psychedelics are good facilitators of that. Yeah. It's, you know, a question I ask myself sometimes, and I think that gets me and a lot of people that try to make the transition from UPS driver to podcaster or bank executive to facilitator or lawyer to integration coach is like, we're already programmed with this false idea of how do I monetize this? Like, and I, th I think as soon as you start doing that, you begin to regress into the last world you came from. Like, yeah, I think that the only way to monetize something is to outgrow the idea of monetizing something. <laughs> right? <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> Yes. Oh my God. That is so well put. Absolutely. I mean, when I came in as a harm reduction coach, this didn't exist as a profession. Like uh, right. several years ago, this wasn't even a thing. Like even to uh, tell talk to people like, really? That's legal? It's like, yeah, <laughs> actually, yeah. If I don't provide compound, people support their own compound. I could frame and create and craft every facet of that yes. experience. Yeah. And they have made the risk assessment to them that it's important enough for them that they're going to make a choice to acquire compound. Yes, I definitely test it and make sure that it's safe and everything they're working with, you know, as part of the harm reduction protocol. But at the same time, that's how I'm able to be of service in this really direct fashion in, in this contemporary time until things kind of shift and, and change. But like, that's really, if I thought in the beginning, it's like, wait, this doesn't exist or this isn't, I can't do this. Sorry guys. I'm packing up like, you know, or, or, or you know, and, and a lot of people do. And I, and I understand that, but at the same time, it's like, Hey, look, like we have to trust that if you are learning and growing and synthesizing what you really want to do in an earnest way. And that doesn't mean like pitch all your other job and just dive right into it. Build those bridges, right. you know, work that network, start solidifying your process, live your process. Anything I've ever done as a coach, I've done the entire program myself and, 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 and pressure tested or, or offered it to those that I care about for very reduced rates. Be like, hey, I want to make sure there's integrity here. I want to make sure there's value and all these things. As you go through that whole process of distillation, the universe supports these things. Yeah. I mean, it, it just does. It's like, it's like, hey, wait a second. Here's another cool opportunity. Here's a great podcast as a brother that just yeah. love what you shared. Like, you know, these things happen and none of it's by me like orchestrating and all or even expecting that it's going to happen. It's because I'm earnest and I'm, and I'm really devoted to my own cultivation process. And then the cups are matching the energy that I'm holding and increasing as I go. And that's part of that rhythm of intuitive guidance or servant leadership, as opposed to having the whole strategy and plan mapped. Mm -hmm. I love it. I, I We're such on the same level. I, and I, you know, it almost brings us back to the idea of faith or, and maybe that even is, mm. is not the, it doesn't thoroughly hold the, the thing that I'm trying to explain. It's not a perfect container, but it's close. Yeah. Once you begin moving down the pathway, you do see doors open. And, you know, there, I have it right here, actually. So this is a quote that I keep I keep by me all the time. And I, I, I think it holds, it rings true to what we're talking about. And it says, in oneself lies the whole world. 
And if you know how to look and learn, then the door is there and the key is in your hand. Nobody on earth can give you either that key or the door to open except yourself. That's from Krishnamurti. Like it's, and the more you start, the more you embrace. Another great quote is from Alfred North Whitehead, who says that, you know, it's a, uh, God, I'm going to butcher it now that I'm trying to say it. It's like mysticism, clarification, action. And it's so true. Just those three things. Like you have this mystical experience and then you integrate it. You have the clarification and then you can move towards it. And we do that unconsciously. But once you begin to do it consciously, then you can really begin to move down the path of passion that was meant for you. And the doors will open because you found the key. You may not know you have it in your hand, but all of a sudden you're just like, oh, what does this do? And boom, there's Aaron Cruz over there. Hey, here's Dr. Jessica Rochelle. Here's Here's Dr. Rick Strassman. Like, dude, how, how did I open that door, man? I don't know. But it's there. If you just have the, the power to believe in yourself, and it's just, just one step at first, right? Just get up and try one thing. And don't, don't come off the path, man. If you, you need to sit down for a minute, sit down. But get up and keep walking on that path, and I promise you, it'll pave its own way, man. It's so beautiful. And I'm, I love the way you put it, man. Thank you. Yeah. No, thank you, George. That You just really nailed it right there too, man. That is so true. It's the earnest nature of honoring the gravity that's drawing you forward and just trusting that there's something important there. There's something to that, that fire. And, you know, I always find faith for me is like, faith is that space where your soul feels a resonance that your mind can't understand, you know, wow, that's because, good. Now your soul is, it's a unified being. Yeah. So you could feel a unified force and frequency in the soul. There's something there. There's a gravity there. There's something holding that space, but the mind being inherently polarized, that's, that's its CPU. That's where it works from. It can't absorb or understand anything that moves beyond a rationale of cause and effect. So it's not going to be able to shift into that, where that field of awareness is, where your soul holds, you know? So that's where that kind of deeper question moves upward. But in that place for me, it's always in a position of, can I trust in that resonance? Mm. And then can I also then honor that there will be practical skills that need to be learned and there will be things that need to be adhered to and experiences and accountability and responsibility, all those things that go out the, the, the window, but there's just a deeper openness to, I'm also evolving into something novel and I'm also transforming in continuity and I'm coming at the work universe and the world with paintbrushes in my hand, not yeah. hammers and nails. Not right angles everywhere. No, I'm going to Bob Ross it. You know, I got a little speed over here. Oh, let's smudge that back into a mountain. That's perfect. There we yeah. go. Like, you know, like, and trusting in the, and the ability to adapt and shift and change and, and, and audible and all these different things. But if the movement, as you say, moves forward yeah. and you're, and you're going through in a pace that honors your own fire and of intent there, it does create conditions that are going to be beneficial in your favor and supportive in your favor, you know, and, and that's and at the end of the day, you know, that's that's a path that takes great trust. And it also where I feel like happens in a psychedelic experience, when you have that lived experience, which you talked about, mm -hmm. it creates an imprint. That imprint is a signature in the self. That signature, then, even if it fades, it's there. When you're meditating, you know where you're going to. When you're praying, you know where you're praying to. When you're moving in alignment with something that's true to your heart, you know where you're headed. You know where you're headed and feel. You might not know what's going to be cultivated at the end of the day, what that's going to materialize into. And you're not even as concerned, to tell you the truth, because you're starting to live from a place of appreciating the process and learning how to live in alignment. Alignment feels really powerful and profound when you're actually where you 
where you want to be and who you are is aligned with your truth. It's like, uh, and so there's that trust that develops, but that's where I feel like it's helpful with the immersive experiences are key. Now you have a signature in the self. Now you understand where you're headed and a feel of what that is, a real visceral energy of what that is. So walk the path and trust that where it is. And if you're off and you're wonky, you'll know it too. You can't unknow what you know. You know, yeah. like, oof, that's mm -hmm. dissonant. You can choose <laughs> to learn those lessons or live in fear, you know, because often mm. they're fear-oriented lessons or choose fear. But if you choose trust, then that's different. That's the other frequency. Mm -hmm. That's a great point to bring up fear. It, it almost seems that the majority of the lives, what well, that's not really well said. It seems to me a big part of mental illness that people are dealing with today is a sort of symptom of fear. Like I've, I was so fearful for so long about being my authentic self. I was so fearful for so long about standing up for myself or, or not being able to provide or, you know, all these things that especially a guy has is like, man, if I do that, how am I going to provide for my family? And, you know, it's, it's, it's this really internal struggle that so many of us go to. And if you don't deal with it, it manifests in depression. It manifests in anxiety. But if you just stand up against it, I think people will find fear is afraid of you. Right? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> right? Yeah. 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 Oh, man, that's so well said, George. I mean, because you look at fear and how that controls so many oh, people's God. lives, you know, on so many levels. I mean, yeah. it's what we hear in the news. It's what the ant wants to call and dump dirty laundry on it. COVID-19, like, like all these things is fear, fear in every expression of it. And fear constricts. Yeah. Fear brings you tight. You know, it, it confines the view. It makes you want to hunker away. It makes you want to isolate. Everything, you know, the opposite of love, I feel, is fear more so mm. than hate. At least there's passion. At least there's fire and care and hate. You know, like yeah. something there. You know, like you got something there. You know, but like if fear is like, it's it's disconnection. It's disassociation. It's 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 isolation. It's it's literally trying to remove yourself from the stream of life for a false sense of safety. When anything mm. else does that, it atrophies, it decays, it stagnates. Anything that isolates, no matter what substance, it goes spoiled when it's by itself when it hides, when it moves into a container for, I don't care how many years, it's going to go bad at some point, you know, like, so you look at that and you say, then why do I do that with my own life? Why do I create these bigger boundaries and not allow myself people to see the true me and get all these things to protect myself and, you know, and, and all those elements when anything in nature that does that fails. And so that, that energy of the fear, the the, 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 that energy of pushing away, that is unfortunately part of a psyche wound that has mm. been materialized in our collective society for fair many, many long, for many generations, thousands of years, even I would say. But looking at where we are now, we're recognizing that fear has driven us into a corner. And right. at this point, you either bark out and strike into somewhere become a warrior. You know, this is great yeah. talk called from the warrior to the warrior. <laughs> like people that judge things on assumed fears. I won't go outside because this might happen. This woman did like, I, I, you, yeah, you might have to check it out and people I'm might gonna write it down. This woman did a statistical analysis. Like there's like a 0.08% chance that what you're worrying about is actually going to happen. Do we live any of our life like that? Uh Oh, there's a 0.8% chance that I'm going to crash my car. I'm not going. 
Like, no. <laughs> so, so what you fear that holds you back is often an assumed fear that has such an intangible possibility that really overcoming that and just choosing your inner ability to learn, to grow, to have resilience, it can change everything. And all it takes is a first step to start that reprogramming. Oh, that didn't happen the way I thought it was. Hmm. Maybe I can reconsider these these adventures in my life and start experiencing things. Aaron, I feel like the time has flown by, man. And I, I really thoroughly enjoy talking to you. Uh, it exceeded all my expectations. I love what you're doing. Everybody should go and check out what he's doing. It's, it's, it's remarkable. It is healing. It's fun. It's original. It's all those things combined into once. And he's clearly a really passionate person and cares about people. So Aaron, I'm going to have to have you come back because I feel like we could talk a lot longer and we could have maybe some more people involved. It'd be really fun. But before I let you go, where can people find you? What do you got coming up and what are you excited about? Yeah, awesome. Well, thank you so much, George. It's been an absolute pleasure. When you reached out initially and I saw the level of integrity of the people you posted on the show, I was like, oh, wow. Yeah, like I was really humbled and honored. Yeah. You know, So thank you so much. This has been a wonderful conversation. Love where you're driven in here. Uh, well, if anyone wants to learn about my work, I'm at thespark.co. So it's uh, T-H-E-S-P-A-R-C.co. Uh, right now, I've got a lot of really exciting things going on. You know, I, I'm, I'm building a community center right here on our property in Asheville, North Carolina. It'll be able to lodge 12 people, individuals or 12 families, you know, with beautiful facilities, multiple, you know, bathrooms, restrooms, all this, like everything there, uh, epicenter for ceremonial work, epicenter for getting together, exploring ideas, facilitation of different forms. We're on 11 acres, beautiful landscape out here. So really starting to start to engender a community culture out here right at the home front, which I love. Um, is, is, is coming up here as well. Uh, I'm part of the, I just got on the board with the Pearl Psychedelic Institute. Um, they're out here in Waynesville. They're one of only three facilities in the entire country that are currently doing MDMA, uh, a psychedelic assisted psychotherapy. Uh, so they're pioneers on the cutting edge and old wizards in their own right. I have a lot of respect <laughs> and love for them. They're going to be hosting also kind of events and symposiums here in the Asheville, North Carolina area, trying to build conferences, trying to build the, the, the type of congregation of people coming together in this space. And you know, ultimately for my own work, I'm just, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm facilitating one-on-ones, groups, experiences, different things like that. But I'm really just excited about being a part of the now professional conversation, the integrity and ethics behind ceremonial facilitation, how important that is. I mean, we really got this, got to get this right, you know, because if we go out there and we start creating these containers and situations occur that are unsafe, unethical, unbalanced for caring for people deeply in these states, then it's going to be all white coats and therapists. And maybe it should be if we can't get that right. So I think in part of this is also now wanting to experience and ex explore and converse about how to create containers, festivals, events, how to create experiences one-on-one -on -one that are safe and honoring of the gravity of this, but also use non-traditional magic medicine and mysticisms to, to, to make this an experience for others. Um, so George, I really appreciate the opportunity to share and, you know, and I, and I do, I'd love to come back on and, and dive into some new phenomena, see what we can create together. <laughs> All right. Well, ladies and gentlemen, hang on one second, Aaron. I'm going to hang up with these guys, but I'll talk to you for one quick second afterwards. Okay. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for being here. Check out all of the cool links in the show notes. And that's all we got for today. Aloha. Aloha, everyone. Thanks for taking a moment to hang out with me in the True Life Podcast. I truly appreciate it. If you're taking some time to listen to this, whether it's your first podcast with me or you've been with me the whole way, I truly want to say thank you from the bottom of my heart. Additionally, I would like to try to inspire everyone. The world is a crazy place. And if you listen to your heart and you take some chances, 
I really think the world will unfold in front of you in ways you can't imagine. I've been doing the podcast for about five years. Last year, I decided to take the plunge. Well, circumstances dictated that I took the plunge, and I did. I've begun working on the podcast full-time for almost a year now, and it's been so rewarding to me that I just want to try and inspire other people. If you have a dream, if you have a vision, follow the voice in your heart. Listen to the song on the wind and embrace the challenge. I think you're strong enough, you're smart enough, and you're good enough to make your dreams come true, but you have to believe in them. And I truly believe wholeheartedly that if you take a chance, a real chance on what is possible, then your dreams will unfold in front of you. Uncertainty can be a monster. It can be something that we run away from. But much like fear, if you stand in front of it, it's not that big of a problem. I know everyone listening to this has a dream and a vision, and I hope you all conquer it. And I want you to know it's possible. Take baby steps and move towards it, and you will get closer to it. Your relationships will be better. Your life will be better. And you know what? You deserve it. You're an amazing person. If you get a moment, go down to the show notes. If you can, support the show. Thank you so much for being here. Now let's get to it.